Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. I'm Serena Wilson, a training manager at DCS, and I'm your host for this edition. Today we have Mr. Pierce Beckham. Mr. Beckham is the Director of Systems Integration and Innovation, and he is instrumental in policy development, training, service development, and data analysis in the Office of Child Safety and also in the Office of Child Programs. We also have Mr. Drew Wright with us today. Mr. Wright is the Executive Director of Legislation and Policy at the Department. Mr. Wright is appointed by the Department to communicate with legislators and others about the positions of the Department regarding policy and law. Each year, the state legislature starts to meet in January and work on bills to turn into laws. In this edition of DCS Talks, we would like to learn more about the legislative process and how new laws are integrated into DCS policy and practice. We would also like to discuss a few of the new laws that started in July of 2021 that impact DCS. Many of the new laws impact program areas of child protective services in the Office of Child Safety. And I have the correct people here today to talk about this process and laws. Welcome, Mr. Wright and Mr. Beckham. Hello, Serena. Thanks for having us. Hello. Thank you so much. So glad you're here. So we want to talk to Mr. Wright today. And for our listeners, tell us about your current role as the executive director of the legislative process. Yeah, so thanks, Serena. Hello again, everybody. Drew Wright. Our legislative office, one of our key functions is to monitor and review legislation on behalf of the department and advocate for favorable changes and try to speak against any negative ones that negatively impact our programs or our mission here at DCS. And another big thing that we do, we work with legislators when they have constituent concerns that relate to DCS operations. So they'll call us and say, hey, can I get some help addressing such and such issue? And we work hand in hand with our customer relations team and program leaders to address those issues that are identified. Another thing that we do in the legislative office is we work hand in hand with policy leaders, such as Pierce visiting with us today. When a bill becomes a law, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, sometimes it will impact our policies and sometimes it will frankly require us to change our policies to get into compliance with a statute. We like to give notice about legislative changes as they're upcoming and just talk to program owners about policy changes and and other program impacts that occur because of the laws that are passed. But I think Pierce will talk more about the implementation side of that. I'll um, reserve any more comments for him. So that kind of gives you a high level, Serena. That's exactly what I was interested in. Just a clarifying question for myself. When you say constituents, can you just expand on all the different types of people that that could be? Sure, absolutely. So legislators, they represent, and I'll I'll touch on this, I think in a moment, I may give you just kind of a high level look at what the legislature looks like. And each of the representatives or the senators represent Tennesseans. A constituent could be a citizen from the legislator's district, or it could be, you know, another concerned citizen somewhere outside of their district, just that 
they put something on the legislator's radar that might concern them and the legislator will look into it on behalf of that citizen slash constituent. A constituent could also be a business, other interested parties, a nonprofit, a local school district, LEAs, those types of things. So constituent C here is pretty broad, but it can, it represents people who are interested in the process. Thank you so much. It really does put the government in the hands of all the citizens. Thank you for that clarification. Mr. Wright, could you briefly explain about the General Assembly and, and when it meets each year? And, and let us know, is our constituents or the general public able to attend the sessions of the legislators? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. So we all, or, or most of us probably had some type of civics or general government type class in school, and many of us probably forgot all about it ever since then. But here's what it looks like in Tennessee. So you have Congress at the national level, that's in D.C., but in, in Tennessee, we have our General Assembly is what it's referred to, and they meet in Nashville at the, at the state capitol every year in January, as, as you mentioned. They have two-year terms, so each General Assembly consists of two years. Um, we are currently, as we sit in 2021, we're, we just wrapped up the first year of the 112th General Assembly, a second year of that this coming January. And so the, the legislature will come back into session in January. And so they usually meet for several months to take up various bills and, and initiatives. The one thing they have to do every year, so each year in each General Assembly, they have to pass a budget, and they're required constitutionally to pass a balanced budget in Tennessee. That is their only thing that they're mandated to do, but they usually, as we all know, take up various other bills. The House of Representatives in Tennessee is made up of 99 House members. So there are 99 House districts in Tennessee, and then there are 33 Senate districts. So that's a little bit different than, than the dynamic that's in D.C. Here in Tennessee, there's 99 House members and 33 senators. And so every year, there are approximately 1,500 to 1,800 bills that are filed by those senators and representatives. You know, that gives you just kind of a snapshot about how many bills that are processed. A lot. Yeah. When a bill is filed, and if we recall from our Saturday morning cartoons, when a bill is filed, it, it has to pass through a certain process before it becomes a law. Of those 15 to 1800 bills that are filed, probably a third or so will pass and become law. There's mm -hmm. a certain process that takes place before they become law. A representative or a senator will be able to file a certain number of bills, and those are capped by the House or Senate rules. So they'll, they'll only be able to file a certain number of bills. But they'll do that, and what will first happen is the bill has to be read in front of the full House or the full Senate and passed twice, and that's passed really quickly. It's called first and second consideration. Those are very quick processes. You may not even notice it, but then those bills will be referred to a committee, and at the committee level is when they're kind of really debated and discussed in a lot more detail. Each of the General Assembly members will serve on various committees, and those committees have various subject specialties. You have the Committee on Health and the Committee on Government Operations and the Committee on Finance and Committee on Education. A bill will go into whatever subject matter it is will go in front of that standing committee and be debated. If it passes through the standing committee, then it will go to the full chamber or the either in the House or in the Senate for a vote by the full body. To pass out of the House or the Senate, it requires just a simple majority vote in the House, that would be um, 50 House members out of the, out of the 99 would, would get a bill passed, and then it would have to pass in the Senate again by simple majority. Once it passes both chambers, 
And the governor would then have an ability to, to veto the bill or sign it into law, or he can also, interestingly, allow the bill to become law without signing it. And so that's the, kind of the three different actions that he has. Governor does happen to veto a bill. The process would look like this. The General Assembly could then vote to override his veto. And all that it takes in Tennessee, as opposed to D.C., which has a different process, but in Tennessee, the General Assembly can override a veto by, an, again, a simple majority. So that if it was the same vote taken the first time and the governor vetoed it, they could go back and vote the same way and it would pass. And it would become law even over the governor's veto. So a lot of people don't realize that. Let's talk about now about how we get involved in the process. There are a number of the things that the legislative team for DCS looks at. We read every bill that's filed. So that again, 15 to 1800, we try to identify which bills might have a program impact to us. We will recruit program owners and, and specialists and, and people that have a subject matter expertise and get them to weigh in on the bill and any potential impact it might have. We did about three to 400 bills that, that would impact DCS out of the 1500. So those are the ones we kind of track the most closely. What we're looking for are concerns about any programmatic impact, any budget impact that it might have if the bill would cause us to do more work or, and, and require more staff to be hired, then we would have input into the fiscal or the financial impact of that. We usually come up with a recommended position about a bill and we would recommend that to our commissioner and then the commissioner would make a recommendation to the governor. We can work on what are called amendments to a bill. So if a bill, a bill might start out looking like something totally different from what actually passes. And so that's one thing I would caution anybody. If they get on the General Assembly website, which is really good, by the way, if they do get on the website, a bill as it's originally filed might look something totally different than what actually passes. There are amendments along the way. This is very commonplace and DCS definitely gets to participate in that process. We can recommend amendments to, to bills. And that's one way that we're able to advocate for DCS and for children and the mission of DCS and the programs that we implement. That is interesting if a new law impacts the way that we conduct our programming here at the department, it could also impact the state budget. So those two processes have to work hand in hand sometimes. So absolutely it does. It's something I failed to mention that we always do is we always take part in drafting a recommended budget for the department. The legislative team doesn't lead that charge, but we're involved in knowing what the budget looks like. And so our assistant commissioner of finance and budget will lead that working with commissioner and other various executive leadership members. We'll make a recommendation of a budget to the governor who will make a recommended budget and present it to the general assembly who will then have the ability to they could vote it exactly as is, or they could make their own tweaks. But also along the way, any bill that's filed, if the bill has a fiscal impact, meaning a financial impact, if it has a cost to the taxpayers or to the state, then a cost will be assigned to that bill and they have to reconcile that through the budget process. So if a bill has a dollar amount of a cost of $100,000, you have to make sure those $100,000 are represented in the budget or else that bill will not pass. So that's something that we constantly work on throughout the process. So we have input into what the bill will cost our department in our operations. Important to note and understand it's funded by citizens for citizens. So. Absolutely, and on that note, you're, you're talking about citizens and I, you asked this question, I didn't answer it. Can the public attend these sessions? The answer is yes. These sessions, the legislative sessions, both the committee hearings and the House and Senate chamber 
meetings are open to the public. You could march or drive on up to the state capitol and go and attend those for yourself. You could go down to Cordell Hall building where they conduct their committee hearings and attend those. Or you can go to the to the General Assembly website and live stream. They have great live stream function where you can watch the proceedings live as they as they go on and unfold like C-SPAN. <laughs> yep, just like C-SPAN, and that you can also watch them on demand. They have a great on-demand function where they video capture everything and just store it on the website. So you can go back and watch the next day if you missed it the day before. That's great. An overview of the legislative process and yeah, that's yeah. really great information and we as members of department of children's services and as child welfare professionals we act as constituents at time with bills that impact our department and then other times we act more in terms of advisory committees is that a good way to put it you can that's a great way to put it you put it very well so one thing so sometimes we would advocate for a certain position or sometimes we might just be asked for input we could give advice on how a bill on foster care might be implemented and what that would look like for our foster youth or our foster parents or our foster care workers yeah Uh, we would be an advisory role there and to really share our subject matter expertise so in regard to some of the legislation that went into effect this past july Can you tell us about two administration bills that DCS brought a lot of expertise to and and what that looks like for us? Absolutely. As you stated, DCS did have two what we call administration bills. Those are bills that we proposed and that were part of, of Governor Lee's administrative package. And those bills are carried by the House and Senate leadership. They have just kind of that special name of being an administration bill but we had two one dealt with one we called our foster youth reach act and this one so it dealt with tennessee hope foster child tuition grants and basically it's a program that's already in place but the previous law required foster youth to be in custody for one year prior to being eligible for that grant and we removed that one year requirement child would have their 17th birthday he or she enter custody for the first time, so they wouldn't meet that full year requirement. So this bill would allow them to still be eligible for that scholarship without having been in custody for one year. It also set up a pilot liaison program with uh, higher ed institutions where we partner with the higher ed institutions and we provide those institutions with information about our extension of foster care services and just really when a former foster youth is on a college campus how can we wrap our arms around them and provide them the support they need the additional assistance they might need that that sometimes we forget about once they leave our custody they go out and they try to become productive adults and this would create a program where they'd have additional support on those college campuses. Another bill that we passed, which is a little more nuanced, but it deals with modernizing our contact veto registry. So this was an important one for our adoption record staff. There were some technology has sort of outpaced the law a bit in this area. Some of the adoption records that we keep and the procedures that have been put on the books for a long time are a bit outdated. And this bill really just kind of modernized that. It created new rules about when a court 
sends certain records to our records division and what how they have to be kept and they're certainly still kept highly confidential and under steel and all those things but the bill one of the things it did was deleted the contact veto registry so that was just was identified as from our program staff as something that was a heavy administrative lift for them that didn't really have a lot of value anymore in today's climate there's a lot of technology 23 and me and various things out there that allow a child to determine who his ancestors are. And so that child, he or she would will learn of their ancestry, even without the department sharing the records when they turn 21. We did away with that registry, and I think it's going to create a lot of efficiencies in our adoption records. Thank you for that explanation about updating a law to be contemporaneous with modern technology. So thank you for that entire explanation, Mr. Wright. I appreciate that. At this point, I'd like to shift and talk to Mr. Pierce Beckham again. Mr. Beckham is the Director of Systems Integration and Innovation. And Mr. Beckham, please tell our listeners about your role at the department. Thank you, Serena. My role at the agency is to take an agency-wide view of how we do our business and why we do our business. We are impacted by state and federal laws, judicial decisions from our local courts up to the state Supreme Court as well as federal courts, and then the complexity of the situations that confront Tennesseans and the families that we serve every day. That leads to a highly complex system that has to be able to adapt and respond to all of these situations. And as we do our work, there are ways that we can better leverage the resources that we have, that we can modify the structure that we uh, operate within, whether that is organizationally, uh, whether that is through our policies, and as well as you know, bringing new and creative ideas to the table. So my role is not to come up with it all myself, thankfully, but to serve as a point person and a go-between between, between um, our frontline staff, our constituents, our community partners, as well as management to see where those uh, opportunities for greater efficiency exist uh, so that we can better serve the children and families of Tennessee. That is fantastic. It truly takes a village to do this work and appreciate you delving into those complexities of the child welfare system. There are many new laws that impact most of the program areas at DCS. Thankfully, uh, Mr. Drew Wright explained about that legislative process. So after a bill has been turned into law, then it comes to the Department of Children's Services or any department. Could you briefly describe the process of how the laws are then integrated into policy? Sure. We have a standing uh, process for reviewing and updating our departmental policies. And when a bill is passed, oftentimes even before the final signature, if there is indication that it is in its final version and is likely to pass, we will review our policies for changes. That is often prompted well before because, as Director Wright said, you know we are sometimes advising and giving feedback. So we have already identified potential policies that are going to be impacted impacted by a bill being passed into law. So we will draft changes to reflect any sort of impact that is done at the programmatic side, and we send that through a process that includes DCS legal so that the attorneys can ensure that we are meeting the requirements that may come out of any sort of bill that is passed. That is put out on our website so that DCS staff as well as the public can provide comments 
on any different type of policy revision that could be coming forward. Those are taken back before a policy is finalized. That can happen on a variety of timeframes depending on the urgency of the issue. Some laws will give a period of time from the time that it is signed to when it is enacted. And so we try to ensure that we are following the enactment of that law with our policies as quickly as possible. Now, one of the things that may impact the true timing of that is we are a large agency. We want to make sure that not only are the policies written to reflect any changes that a law may have, but that our staff is educated and informed of the practice expectations. It's not just words on paper. It's how are people interacting in the field, uh, whether that is a change in how we document interactions or store information within our database system to how we interact with uh, children and families if there is different ways that we need to provide information to individuals or conduct ourselves in the community. We want to make sure that that information and expectations are well communicated to our staff to uphold the spirit and the letter of the laws that have been passed. Thank you for that explanation, because I think when we talk about bills and laws and policy, oftentimes we may lose sight that it's actually directly related to the the tasks that we do at work on a daily basis. And so, and again, we are a large agency, so sometimes it takes just some time to make those changes and integrate them into the various systems. And I do appreciate both of you conducted a series of fireside chats to communicate about the new legislation and how it would impact our work. So I do appreciate both of you doing that with our staff so they feel well equipped and informed. To speak to some of the new legislation, could you tell us a little bit? There's two I'm particularly interested in and what the laws mean and how it will impact our policy and practice. And the first is the exposure to dangerous drugs laws. You could speak to that a bit. These laws impact the way that we conduct business around drug abuse in Tennessee. It has been an issue that the department has addressed for decades, the increase in substance abuse and addiction and the impact that it has on the ability to parent children. These laws carve out two specific additions to what is considered severe child abuse. Child abuse in Tennessee, there are two levels. There is abuse and neglect and severe abuse and neglect. And that higher level of severe abuse has impact not just within the DCS system, but within the juvenile courts. I'll get to that here in just a moment. These laws created two additional categories of severe abuse specific to drugs. One really is about the exposure of children to drugs, allowing a child to be within a structure with certain specific substances. And the law details very clearly the types of substances that the bill applies to. The second is for young children under the age of eight, if they ingest and test positive for an illegal substance or a non-prescribed substance, that can be considered severe child abuse. And there are caveats and pieces of the legislation that really give guidance on when it applies and when it doesn't apply. So that required a change within the agency because severe child abuse is handled by a specific group of workers within the Child Protective Services Unit. So those cases are now always going to be funneled 
to those workers to investigate. And because it's severe abuse, that investigation is conducted jointly with law enforcement, the district attorney's office, and the child advocacy centers across the state. Now, that is a, a multi-step process that is trauma-informed so that children are not repeatedly interviewed about the same topic that trauma-informed services, including counseling for all members of the family, can be applied very early on in the, the situation. And then as that case moves through juvenile court, a severe abuse finding in juvenile court could lead to a quicker permanency outcome for a child through adoption. If a severe abuse finding is found in juvenile court, then the court can relieve the department of reasonable efforts, which just means that we are no longer required to work with the person who severe abuse has been found against, and we can move that child towards adoption very quickly. So there is an internal practice component, uh, both on the child protection side and how we conduct the investigation, but it, can, it also affects our foster care and adoption side because it, now these situations are clearly delineated within state law to fall into the severe abuse category and access that pathway towards permanency. Thank you so much. This new law impacts our primary outcomes such as safety, permanency, and well-being, and it aligns with child welfare professionals throughout the United States. It impacts each of the program areas and the specialties. Thank you for explaining that to us and how one change in law can be very far-reaching. We also have a new law called Eli's Law that has to do with newborns, and if you could tell us about that law and how it may impact the different areas at Children's Services in Tennessee. Eli's Law is a law that really centers around communication and notification. The, the law speaks to newborns that have an older sibling that is currently within the department's custody under dependent neglected grounds through juvenile court. And what the law says is that the department is to notify the juvenile court when we learn that a child in our custody for those reasons has a newborn sibling born to one of the parents. We take a family-centered approach. We work with the entire family. And while juvenile court proceedings, we have to you know, name specific children and the facts around those specific children, you know, we work a family permanency plan with the court and involve all the family members and extended family in supporting that family to address the issues. And so this law formalizes a notification that we have another child involved with the family that may not have already been in front of the court through that original petition that led to the child being in our custody for dependent neglected grounds. Okay, thank you. And just a question. Sadly, some youth may commit some crimes and they come into the custody of children's services through our juvenile justice system. So that law would apply even for a youth who was in ju juvenile justice if his one of his parents um, had a newborn child, his or her parents. Actually, no. And this really? is one of the reasons why we have um, Drew and his team uh, to work with us and to inform the, the staff and why we do wait until the final version of law. So we want to make sure that we have a full grasp of the, the legislative framework that is being asked for us to adapt to. This law is very specific when it talks about uh, children in foster care for dependent neglected grounds. And dependent neglect is another way of saying abused or neglected. Our delinquent population, those children that are in our custody because of uh, 
criminal charges and convictions are outside of this law. So it does not require the notification in that circumstance. Okay, thank you. That is a great clarification and a great way that DCS was able to communicate with legislators about the work that we do and gain consensus and understanding. Um, and when when you say notification, what does that consist of? It's the form of the notification was not prescribed to us. It just uh, wanted the law directs the department to notify the juvenile court. And so that is a conversation that we do have internally of how can we do that, especially across all the juvenile courts in every single county. And in some counties, there are multiple courts that address juvenile matters. We do try to have as uniform of a process so that the the judges have an expectation of what they're receiving and that that is consistent across all 95 counties and all courtrooms. And so there is a process that was created that involves the DCS attorneys and our legal department. And those attorneys are the ones that will, as we make these notifications, provide a form letter with the required information to the juvenile court judges to meet the requirements of Eli's law. Wow, okay, that's very interesting. Do we partner with the health um, industry or or hospitals or physicians? Most of the time these notifications come through those contacts. Hospitals and medical providers are mandated reporters of child abuse and neglect. So if there is a concern that this newborn may be at risk of abuse and neglect issues, they will contact the child abuse hotline. Some are aware of a sibling being in custody and may reach out to a foster care worker or another departmental personnel about another family member being born because we do actively work with the medical community and the mental health community because, like I said, we take a family-centered approach. We're not just working on the one or two issues that may have risen to us becoming involved with the family. We take that holistic approach to ensure that the safety, the welfare, and the well-being of all family members are taken care of because we want safe homes and stable homes for children to be raised in. And if someone has an untreated mental illness, someone's having issues seeking medical care, we want to make sure that those underlying issues are, are addressed so that that person's in their best ability to care for the children in their home or to remediate those issues so that a child in our custody can return to their family. Fantastic. To reiterate that holistic view of the family and the community is so important to us here at DCS and also preserving families and communities to promote that well-being, safety, and permanency for everyone. So thank you so much for providing that clarification, Mr. Beckham. Mr. Wright, Mr. Beckham, any last words about the legislative process and policy? You got to be careful to open it up that wide for me, Serena. I can talk for days. <laughs> no. Yeah, the only thing I would add just real quickly, and we kind of hit on it earlier when we talked about kind of the amendment process. When you look at the General Assembly website, a bill that was originally filed might look differently than what it wound up passing as. And so some of those bills that Pierce referenced might be examples of that where the legislative team, based on input from program owners, were able to kind of work on a bill to hopefully improve it a little bit. 
a lot of times a really aspirational or really well-intended idea might have unintended consequences that we try to identify and help iron out a little bit. And so we take on that advisory role and work through amendments. I would point that out that that occurred in a couple of the bills that Pierce mentioned. And that those were not administrative bills, but those were bills that we kind of worked on through the amendment process. Well, that collaborative approach really makes legislation more impactful and the intention and really just in promoting healthy communities and safe children is what it's all about. Thank you for that. And thank you, Mr. Pierce Beckham and Mr. Drew Wright for joining this edition of DCS Talks. Please listen again to hear other subject matter experts discussing ways to advocate for children and build resilient communities.